morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially this blessing of a life. You've given it to us for a reason and for a purpose and for a calling. So guide us in wisdom and strength and perseverance to know your will for our lives. For that is when we are the most fulfilled. We want you to lead us in this time of fellowship and worship with one another through music. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. Amen. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you.
into this place today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in our song. We just ask that you come on over the congregation as we continue to worship. Fill us with your love and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Families, we have class 101 today after the service in room 103. That's class 101 in room 103. If you haven't already done class 101, we ask you to join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Lunch is served and child care is available. Kids, it's time to go learn about Jesus, so head on out to Kids Church. For the rest of us, we're going to stay here and worship.
highest, that, that, that song and this idea, this concept of, of being in a room that is so absolutely full of the glory of God and of the Holy Spirit just flooding in and filling the atmosphere, filling every atom that's in the air with his presence so that when you breathe it, when you feel it on your skin, it soaks in, you're just overcome, you're overwhelmed by it. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, there, I, I have a, a professor who was telling me, he's talking about his time, and he's a very conservative guy and, and didn't go to a, 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 went to a very staid church and a very calm church. And he says he walked into a church once and he said, never experienced anything like it. And you have to understand where this guy is coming from. He, he's, he's the button-down type, very conservative. He says he walked into a church that was like that once. And he swears to God that within five seconds, he was flat on his face. The Holy Spirit knocked him down. Let's ask for God to come into our house right now and do that for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are everywhere. You are there for us to tap into. You want us. Please prepare our hearts to receive your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Woo. Amen. So you feel called to give. Now what? You can write a check, stop by the ATM and get some cash, or dig it out of your mattress. All fine methods, but let's simplify. What if you could give with a simple text message? I know, it sounds like science fiction, but it's not. You can now give by text from your smartphone anytime, anywhere. Simply text GIVE and your amount to the church's unique giving number. A short series of text message prompts will guide you through the giving process. Once you get this complete, you'll receive a text and email confirmation for your records. Be sure and save the number to your phone for future giving. When you give for the first time, you'll receive a link that takes you to the one-time registration where you'll link your debit or credit card. Once that's done, future giving also enjoy the convenience of recurring giving. Each time you give by text, you will have the option to set the amount as a recurring giving. Giving is good, and now it's easier than ever. Give by text today and see just how simple it can be. It is pretty simple, and it's a lot of fun, too. I was like, woohoo, look at money is just flying out of my phone. It was just flying out everywhere I went. But the cool thing is that um, you can, we can uh, do these causes now. So, for example, we have, uh, if we have this, this thing, like this partner's thing, Free Full Lives, we can say, right now you can text uh, $25 free to our number, and what it'll do is it'll automatically go into that cause so the money gets going straight to where it's going. And don't worry, it, lock, it goes right into your own personal account so that you can see at any time you can log into our Friends Church website and see your giving and see how it's going and, and where it's getting to the places, and you can download that at any time and make sure you're on track for your giving-wise. So... It's a really cool little thing, and it doesn't cost you any money if you have uh, texting set up on your phone. And uh, we're going to be using it uh, quite a bit, hopefully, to uh, raise money for special causes. But you can, you can set up your regular giving that way, too, if you want to do that. So how many people out there uh, uh, know what the Darwin Awards are? Just raise your hand. Does anybody know what the, Some of you know what the Darwin Awards are? Well, <laughs> the, the Darwin Awards, after Charles Darwin and the whole idea of survival of the fittest, right? Well, the Darwin Awards... People compete, believe it or not, to win the Darwin Awards every year. The only problem is in order to win the Darwin Awards, you actually have to die. So I'm not sure you get to appreciate the trophy or anything, but essentially what the, <laughs> what the Darwin... I, I shouldn't laugh because people die doing it, but what the Darwin Awards are, and people submit 
their uh, uh, friends and family for the Darwin Awards to this. And you can go online and you can see all the people who were nominated for the last 10 years and the people who won. And it's basically people who died doing the stupidest thing. Whoever did the stupidest thing and died wins the Darwin Award. And there are there's some doozies, let me tell you. Uh, people, uh, I don't know if you, uh, uh, this, this big one this year was all these firecrackers going off. There was, uh, I was watching this thing on 4th of July, it was all these firecracker fails where, for example, that uh, guy, who, I think he plays for the Giants, he's uh, up for a multi-million dollar contract renewal and blows half of his hand off and loses all that money uh, doing stupid things with firecrackers. There's another guy who takes, you guys don't know what an M80 is, do you remember those? Did any of you are lucky enough to live in a state that allowed them? They're like little mini sticks of dynamite, right? Boom! They're awesome. All right? They're so much fun. But some guy decided to put one on top of his head this year and light it off. Needless to say, he's in the running for the Darwin Award. So, and then there's all their guys who are like putting Roman candles on their crotch thinking that was a good idea. I saw another guy who put a sparkler in his nose. And not just like a fun stick sparkler, like one that was like blazing, and he's like, oh, my nose. I'm like, what, what? So you know there was alcohol involved. You know there had to be. Because nobody does stupid things like that without booze being present. Or do they? Because I do stupid things all the time. Can, and I'm, I'm in my mid forward and I still do stupid things. I was talking about, I was like, gosh, I can't believe all the stupid things we did when we were younger. And then I was thinking about it when I was getting ready for this message, and I'm like, I still do something really dumb. And it, it comes out of, it seems like it's a good idea because it's saving time, right? Nothing wrong with saving time. So what I do is I'm tired of starting my mower and stopping it all the time. Like every time I have to, my, my wife makes me bag the grass. She won't let me just leave it out there because the dogs will track it in. So I have to have the bag on it. Well, the bag fills up pretty quick, all right? So instead of having to stop every time I go down and back, and take the bag off, and the mower stops, and I put it back on and start it. What I do is I tie a piece of rope around it so that it won't shut off, right? See? And then you just take the bag off. Yeah, the blade is still going, and it shoots some grass out. No big deal. You empty it off, and you just shove that bag right back in there, right? Sometimes grass gets stuck in there, and so you kind of have to help it get out. But you got a good idea where that blade is, right? You can see it spinning. Now, what's going to happen? What could possibly happen? So, yeah, we continue to do things that seem like a good idea, or maybe don't even seem like a good idea, but you're like, I'm too lazy to actually do the right thing. And so we, we do things that we can do, but we never stop to ask the question, should we do these things? And... In today's society, we're faced with this tension. Eric was talking about last week and Floyd the week before, this tension of all these things that we can do now, all these amazing things we can do, like putting an airplane propeller on our head, or, well, I don't think anybody would do that, but things that we can do because of the achievements of mankind. Now, God has given us the ability to think, and it's awesome, and we've invented all kinds of cool things, like the universal remote. That's the most awesome thing. Although I have like five universal remotes, I still lose those, so I don't know what the purpose of that was. But we can do things, but should we do them? We never, we, so there's the old saying, all science and no philosophy. We can invent all these things, but we never figure out what the unintended consequences are. And sometimes, here's the deal though, sometimes it gets a little tricky. If we try to use our own reasoning and our own values and duties to try and think, think 
think these things out, we can get a little confused and, 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 and the, the morality of a decision can get clouded. And what's worse, all of a sudden, oftentimes some of these decisions, like we're going to talk about today, which seem to have a good outcome where the means seem to justify the ends. When you're faced with a decision such as this, if you're not taking the kingdom perspective on it, you're bringing in all this other baggage to make the decision that tilt it in the favor of the way it shouldn't go. For example, you have a lot of emotion surrounding an issue. Or, or you have this desire, this human desire that we seem to have to avoid pain. And so all of a sudden, all that factors into the decision that you are going to make. And it tilts it. And you, you take the easy way out. Or you take the less painful way out. Or you justify, you, you convince yourself that the means do justify the ends. And then you make a dubious decision that later on you might, or probably will, regret. So what we need to do as Christians is to understand that we are going to be faced to make decisions in this culture, in this pluralistic culture that we live in, where there's going to be tension and we're going to be asked to make decisions that are going to conflict with our Christian values. And we have to prepare ourselves ahead of time to take God's, uh, 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 God's path. So we have these objective moral values and duties that don't change, that come from God. Since eternity, God has been writing these things. He put them out there. He's given them to us. They're not arbitrary. They're there for our benefit. Okay? They might seem like, oh, why does he want us to do this? I mean, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, he's, he's sovereign. He, 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 there are no unintended consequences for God. He has perfect foreknowledge. He can see to the end of history. He knows how things are going to work out. This is why his laws are what they are. And this is why we need to just accept them and say, I, no matter what the situation, I am going to accept God's plan for my life and his rule for my life. So that when you find yourself in a situation where there is a lot of emotion where there's a lot of human gear turning going on, grinding you up inside, trying, and, the, and the enemy gets in it. Oh, don't forget, the enemy, Satan will get in, and he'll try to convince you that the, the means justify the ends as well. Then all of a sudden you end up making a decision that you shouldn't have made because you didn't prepare in advance. We live in this world. It's here. It's not going away. We live in this culture that is at tension between the kingdom of God and this place that we live, this finite place. We're here for just a, a few score and 20 years. We have an eternity with God, and that's what we need to concentrate on. That's the kingdom we need to live in, even though we participate in this one. Today's lesson is going to come from 1 Samuel. And some of you know the story of Hannah, hopefully. It's a great story. And I'm not going to go through all the text because it has a bunch of names that I can't pronounce and I don't want to sound stupid. So go back and read it because there's a lot of flavor that's going to be missed. But I'm going to kind of give you the overview, okay? There was a guy by the name of Elkanah. Elkanah. He had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. See, already I told you the names. Elkanah, Peninnah, Hannah, okay? So Elkanah had two wives. One of his wives, Peninnah, had given him lots of kids, lots of boys and lots of girls. And everybody was happy, except for Hannah, because her womb was barren. She wasn't able to have children, or she hadn't been able to have children up until that point. And it really gnawed at her. 
And we, we see that happening in today's society, of course. Nothing, nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. God has put inside men and women this desire to procreate, this desire to have children, this desire to make new Christians and to bring them up to serve God. It's inside of us. Society for, for women, I, I've seen it. Uh, I, I've seen women even in this church that they didn't mean to do it. They say things like, oh, you don't have any kids yet? And, and they keep this in this. So this women are, 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 are getting it from the outside as well. And this is what was happening inside this relationship. Okay, Elk and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had given him all the kids. Peninnah is turning around and teasing Hannah all the time and poking at her and saying, Ha, you're barren. You can't have children. What use are you? What kind of woman are you? And even if that person weren't there, you get a sense from reading this story that Hannah knew that God's plan for her life was to have children. She knew it. She wept bitterly. She wouldn't eat. Even her husband went to her and said, Listen, don't you know you're more important to me than ten wives or ten, ten uh, daughters and ten sons? But it didn't ease her. It, she, wasn't, she didn't want to have children to make him happy. She wanted to have children because that's the way God had created her. That's the way God had made her. Some women aren't like that. Some men aren't like that. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But for Hannah, that was the case. She wanted to have children. And so she wept bitterly and she prayed out to the Lord. And the story ends well. Hannah does have children. And I'll let you go ahead and read that. But it's a, it's a fantastic story. And that's God's plan for creation. That's his plan for us. His plan was for men and women to come together inside the confines of marriage, inside of a marriage pact and have children. He said to, when he was creating the world, he says, I'll make man in my image and then he'll make women too. And then I want them to get together and be fruitful and multiply. There's the flood. After the flood, he says to Noah and he sends, he's like, okay, now it's your job. Get together, men and women, repopulate the world, go forth. This is what the Bible wants us to do. It wants us, he tells us, that the offspring are a reward for him like arrows in the hands of a warrior or children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children are a blessing. That's what God wants us to do. In the New Testament, you see it too. You remember Jesus talking about the children all the time? He's like, bring them to me. Bring them to me. I need to bless them because these children are the kingdom. They are the ones that are going to carry the kingdom forward when we are gone. We are raising up new spiritual children all the time. The Bible is full of this. God's perfect plan for us was to have children. There was going to be no infertility before the fall. Had the fall not happened, nobody would ever want for a child. It would be there. It would be a natural blessing of marriage. But unfortunately, we messed it up. God's plan was corrupted in the fall. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and in, his, and in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Sin is this underlying state of alienation from God. It's, it's like a flaw in human nature. But it's not something that God created. It's something we created through our own actions. And we continue to create this, this schism, this flaw. It keeps getting wider and wider. And it expresses itself 
at every level of human failings. It expresses at the personal level, the social level, the structural level. At the personal level, we have this deep anxiety about death, about our own mortality. We're trying to do things all the time because of sin. Because remember, before the fall, death wasn't going to be a big deal. Death was not going to happen. But now we have this deep anxiety over it. We have this hole in our heart that no created object can fill, and we're always trying to figure it out. Sin caused that. Sin caused that wanting. Sin caused that gulf between us and God. Sin also keeps us separated from being able to fulfill those, our highest ideals, the things we want to do. You hear Paul talking about it all the time. There's all these things in the world, all this right in the world, all this, uh, all this beauty in the world that I want to tap into. I want to be a part of it, but I can't do it. I can't do it because I'm fallen. I can't do it because it's part of who I am as a human being. Outside of God's help and outside of the cross, we're unable to achieve all these things because of sin. And you know what the amazing thing is? From the Enlightenment on, so from about the 17th, 18th century on, we figured, we started to get this idea that if we could just educate people enough, if we could teach everybody to read and do the reading, writing, arithmetic, that somehow sin would go away. Sin, that's right. All right. Okay. So everybody could read Plato. Nobody would sin. That was the idea. That was the big liberal dream. But as we can see, this utopia never sprung forth from the, uh, from the halls of academia. In fact, what we've, what we've become are much more informed people who are much smarter in book sense, but more much dumber in moral sense. We've become moral imbeciles as we've gotten smarter and smarter. We have this desire to do these things, to separate us from God, to improve on God. The schism is complete. And we get dumber and dumber. We continue to make dumber and dumber decisions. Despite the fact that we have God's immutable law, which is just as applicable today as it was when it was written. And I'm going to show you that's the truth by taking you through some of these things that deal with the choices that men and women have to go through when they find themselves in a situation of infertility inside of a marriage. In 1978, Louise Brown became the first child to be born of in vitro fertilization. Become the t- she was the first test tube baby, 1978. And I think some of you probably remember Louise Brown. And you've seen subsequent interviews with her. And it's great. She was born. She's a child. Every child is a blessing. About 30 years later, the guy finally won the Nobel Prize for his, um, his work developing this procedure. And now we have IVF. We have surrogacy. We have artificial insemination. And all these, what we call assisted reproductive technologies, are woven into the fabric of, of, a, the, uh, of the American culture. And... And we don't question them. We never stop to say, we can, sure, but should we? Do these means justify the end? And so I'll take you through a couple of these so you can see how if we follow God's law, we can make the morally correct decision every single time based on his immutable principles that he has given us in the Holy Scriptures. The first one we're going to talk about is artificial insemination. There's two types. Did you know there's two types of artificial insemination? There are. First one is okay. Artificial insemination by husband is what it's called. Okay? 
No, I, I mean, <laughs> besides the regular insemination by husband, this is, this is when, this is like e-harmony for the sperm and egg, okay? This is when, just like in real life, where sometimes the husband and the wife have trouble communicating, well, it happens at a much smaller level. The, the sperm are just a little too stupid or a little too busy watching sports to be able to do the job. So a doctor helps things along, like a counselor says, come over here, you come over here, you two get together. The fertilization goes forward and the baby develops along normal lines. This happens, and I should do the one caveat. I said this is okay. This is a particular, uh, this is a particular kind of assisted reproductive technology that is covered under what's called God's common grace, which we can accept as Protestant Christians. But it, happened, it has to happen inside of a marriage. This is the one caveat. God expects the genetic material from the mother and the father to get together inside of a marriage to produce a child. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so we look at this and we say, okay, this is what the Bible teaches us. This is the procedure. They seem to line up. This seems to be okay. We'll go forward with this. The second type of artificial insemination is called artificial insemination by donor. And this is not okay. This is for whatever reason, the man's sperm's not getting it done. And so they have to go out and find a third party. And so what people will do is they'll go and they'll they'll find a place that, that provides this service. And this wall of secrecy is set up so that the, the birth parents never know who the donor was. And sometimes what they'll do is they'll take several donors and they'll mix it all together and then they'll do it so it really puts up the wall of secrecy. Now, this is not okay. And the reason it's not okay is all of a sudden you're introducing a third party into the situation. It's not just a man and a wife anymore. It's a man and a wife and some other person. You've got genetic material coming from a third party to form a child. Now, if the child's born, the child's a blessing. God has allowed the child to live. But this kind of reproductive technology is unbiblical. And as Christians, we can look at the Bible, we can look at this, and we can say, no, we shouldn't do that. And start to think about some of the unintended consequences that, you, that come from this sort of situation. What if the kid someday wants to know who his father is, his biological father is? What if the man, and I can see this happening in the back of his head, he knows that, uh, that he wasn't able to, to get the job done, and he knows that biologically, genetically, that child is not his. I'm not saying that in 99% of the time that they, he wouldn't love the child because of it. But it might be in the back of his mind, and it might affect his decisions. And these are some of the unintended consequences. Now, the next time, kind of uh, art what they call them, assisted reproductive technologies. It is in vitro fertilization. And this is the test tube baby thing, right? Okay, this is where what they do is they... In vitro just means in glass. So in the Petri dish or in the test tube. And the procedure for IVF involves extracting eggs from a woman. Often a woman is given all these drugs to super ovulate. Now, I've seen my wife when she's ovulating... And it looks really painful. I can't imagine what she would be like if she were super ovulating. <laughs> She'd probably burn the house down. <laughs> so these, and the reason they give them all these drugs to super ovulate is this. 
is because it's a very expensive procedure and they want to not have to go back in because it's invasive and they have to extract all these eggs out and so they don't want to have to continue to do this. And so what they'll do is they'll go in and let's say they extract eight eggs. So they got eight eggs here. This is cool. They've got eight eggs and then they take the sperm. Let's say this is a perfect situation where it's the husband and the wife and they put the things two together and all of a sudden you've got these eggs and sperm and they fertilize it and you have an embryo. And what is an embryo? What are we as Christians, when do we believe that life begins? Conception. When you have an embryo, you have a life. So let's say you have eight embryos. What are you going to do? Here's what usually happens. They'll take half, let's say half, they'll put four and they'll freeze them. They'll put them in a freezer somewhere. And so you have these four human lives. These potential babies are frozen in a freezer hopefully for use later on. And then they'll take the other four and they'll implant them into the woman. And the reason they implant so many is because there's, despite of all our advances, there's still a high rate of miscarriage. There's still a high rate that these eggs will be rejected. Like the Octomom, they put eight in her, she, that she didn't reject any, so all the babies grew. But what will normally happen, and let's say uh, 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 all four of the, the ones that are put inside the woman take. They, 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 they start to thrive and they start to grow and, and develop inside the woman. What normally will happen is the doctor will say, we have a potential health risk here for carrying quadruplets to term. And so what we would like you to do is selectively reduce the number of pregnancies you have. Selectively reduce the number. Who wants to make that decision? Which babies are you going to abort? The one on the right and the one on the left? Do you want to let a doctor make that decision for you? Nobody wants to go through that. But let's say they all, they all thrive and all four of them are born and all of a sudden, yay, you have quadruplets and this is fantastic. I can't imagine having four kids at once that just come out of nowhere. Sorry, Eric and Lauren. I guess this just happened to you, but blessings. He keeps telling himself it's a blessing. He mumbles it as he walks around the church. But you've got four kids and your life is great. You've got two boys, you've got two girls that say you've got all the kids you've ever wanted. Yay! And you go forward and you forget about the four lives you still got in the freezer. Those are lives. They can't stay in there forever. And you can't throw them away like trash, which is what usually happens. And I've talked to several people during this week and I met, I talked to one person who, who've gone through this and they had children. And the father asked the son, he said, well, what are you going to do about the embryos you have on hold right now? I said, well, we're going to implant them. We have to. We're Christians. We have no choice. And that's right. That's the correct decision. So in vitro fertilization, it's not a completely bad thing, but you have unintended consequences that you have to think about ahead of time. So what you you do is you never make more embryos than you're planning on using. Because every one of those is a life. And then you never implant more than your wife can safely carry to term. Because selective reduction is abortion. And we know how God feels about that. The last type of assisted reproduction technology is just a no-go from the beginning. And that's surrogacy. And people think, oh, come on! What's wrong with surrogacy? This is fine! 
You know, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's not invasive. It's altruistic. Okay, let's have the, the best circumstances with surrogacy is you have your sister who, who doesn't want any money for it. She just wants to altruistically carry the baby for you and your husband. So she carries the baby. She gives it to you. And then afterwards, she stays involved in the family and the raising of the kid at some predetermined capacity. And everybody's happy. Nobody's jealous. And everything goes forward and everything's great. This is very rarely the case. All right? This is very rarely the case. Usually, surrogacy involves the sale of a human being, where somebody is paid to carry the baby. In some bizarre circumstances, you get couples who are completely capable of having their own children will pay somebody else to have a kid for them because they don't want to go through all the yuckiness of birth and labor, and being pregnant, and stretch marks, and all the stuff that comes with it. They don't want to deal with that, so they'll pay for somebody else to do it for them. You can't sell human beings. It's not only against the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which bans slavery. It's morally dubious. It's a no-go. In fact, in that secular bastion, which is Europe, it's illegal in every single country except one. And that's the Ukraine, where they haven't had God since the fall of communism, since before the communism came around. Every country in Europe bans surrogacy, but we have it here in the United States in several states. And it leaves the birth mother open to this. Can you imagine the exploitation that is possible in a situation like this? You, you use these rental wombs. You get these poor women. You say, hey, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you $1,000 if you carry and free, all the free child care you want. And we'll give you a place to live while you carry the child. You just have to give the baby up at the end. In the meantime, this broker who's put the two together charged the couple $50,000. He cuts them all. He cuts the poor woman out of the deal, keeps all the money himself. And so you get this situation where you're just exploitating women. You're using their wombs to have children for couples who can afford it. You're selling human beings. This is not okay. If you think these things through... If you think of these things through from a human, from a, from a godly perspective and not a human perspective, they start to come into focus. And you realize that God's law is applicable to today's technology. There is nothing new under the sun. You can build a better mousetrap than was available for you 100 years ago, but the end result is still a dead mouse. It's different technology, but the end result is the same. The amazing thing is God is the best lemonade maker. He really is. He can take... Uh, you're going to have to click it to the next one for me, guys. He can take what is meant for bad in this world and make it great, which is why all children that are born from any of these procedures, it doesn't matter, are a blessing. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. To have children is amazing. Rich sent me this verse after the first service from Micah, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. God wants godly offspring. And his plan for most people is to have children. But maybe it's not his plan for you. Hannah knew it was her plan. 
was in her future, was to have children. She knew that God wanted her to have children. But you know what? If you find yourself not wanting to have children, that doesn't mean you are not going to be a mother. There are going to be plenty of opportunities for you to be a, an aunt, for, 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 for a, a man to be an uncle or a big brother or to help out in kids' church. There are going to be awesome opportunities for you. To have children is one of the, the blessings of a marriage, but it's only one. And in fact, some people, marriage isn't the, the answer. For some people, God doesn't have marriage in your future. If you've been through the pain of a divorce and you got out the other side and you don't even realize really why, perhaps that wasn't God's plan for you. If you find yourself spending tens of thousands of dollars and going through untold pain and, and pumping your body full of drugs in order to be able to produce a child, do you ever stop to ask the question, is this what God wants for us? Does he want us to have biological children? Sure, perhaps we can, but should we? There are lots of children out there who need us. Foster kids, nieces and nephews, grandchildren. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I say it takes a church to raise a child. This congregation is responsible for all the children that they come into contact with. And not just here in this building, but out in the schools. They're responsible for the children there. The Great Commission says that we are supposed to go out and make spiritual children and raise them. We have that plan. We have that challenge in front of us right now. Every week I think about the, what, what they do over there in Kids Church and I look at these amazing people and the time they give. In fact, let me show you a video that we have for you that you can watch that we made just recently. Well, I started with Kids Church because I just felt a need to help. That I know I had heard the altar call several times that they needed help in Kids Church. And so I really had wanted to help. And I started in the toddler room and that was fun and it was interesting. And then I was diagnosed with cancer and I kind of stepped back for a little bit and I still helped as, as much as I could. And so then I started with um, the second and third grade class because my daughter Brianna was in third grade at the time and she really wanted me to teach her and I wanted to be in the classroom with her. So I started with that and now I teach the fourth and fifth grade class. And it's so much fun that there's days that I go in and I have no energy and I'm just kind of like, you walk in and you're yawning and by the time I walk out, I am just overjoyed, and I feel like I just fill my cup back up, and it's amazing. Last week we were talking about one Thessalonians, and with the kids, it came up of what is Thessalonians. So then we got to go to the map and figure out where was this church at, and it was a great experience with them to find out, okay, what does this even mean? And for the kids to understand, what is the Old Testament? What is the New Testament? How do I find this in the Bible? Because you can assume with fourth and fifth graders that they're going to know this because they know how to read, but they might not know how to find it in the Bible. So when I'm struggling to find something, it's good to be able to look with them in the front and be like, okay, that's on page 11,063. Let's go there. <laughs> 
So the takeaway from that video is if you never teach your kids to read, they will never ask you an awkward question. Unless they get one of those Bibles that have the pictures in it, and then they'll ask you awkward questions. I'm looking at this thing that I saw uh, out in the lobby. We're, we're selling mugs, and they're going to be talking about this in the next couple of weeks. And it, it, we, we talk about partners here a lot. And we talk about the lives of people that we can impact. Well, here's one opportunity. Here's just one opportunity, free, full lives, where kids need people in their lives to help raise them up, to make spiritual, mature beings out of them. And we have an opportunity to help out in this way. Or perhaps you're, you're calling, even though that you're, you're scared stiff of doing it, but you know that God wants you to help out over there. And you know you get the emails just like I do every single week. They always need help over there. And you run into people like Sonia, or you run into people like Joe Bob, and you see the impact that it's having on their lives, being able to help out there. And guys, you don't need a degree in theology to help out in kids' church. You just have to be one page ahead of them, right? That's it. Just read one. Oh, okay, I got the answer to that. Mm, there we go. Be able to serve cookies. Take them to the bathroom. Whatever. Get involved in the PTAs at your school. Get involved in something like partners where you can help them, help families all around the world be able to have the opportunity to send their kids to school, to, to give them an education, to make them better people, to make them interested in the Lord, to raise up mature spiritual human beings. We all have an opportunity to be mothers. We all have an opportunity to be fathers, to be aunts and uncles and foster parents and to adopt kids. There are thousands of lives we can touch right now. It may be God's plan that you have children inside your marriage. It may not be. It may not be that you're even supposed to get married. That might be God's role for you. And if you take the time to ask and to spend time with him, asking him to puzzle these difficult questions out for you, if you ask him for guidance, take the time to ask him what he wants for you in your life. So you don't force the issue. So you don't spend thousands of dollars so that you're not stuck trying to figure out what you're going to do with the lives, the embryos that you have in the freezer. I'm going to call the band up at this point, and I want to end with a couple of things that hopefully, hopefully will put a positive spin on a, kind of a disturbing fact. And that fact is that in this country alone, in the United States alone, we have 700,000 embryos that nobody seems to want, that are frozen. And remember, life begins at conception. Those embryos are lives. But there's a Christian agency that's come up with an embryo adoption program. It's not perfect. It's not what God intended. But what they've been able to do is get couples who couldn't otherwise conceive to adopt these embryos. And to date, 550 children have been born from those. 
Those lives wouldn't happen if it weren't for these people, these Christians stepping in and deciding to do something about it. They couldn't have kids on their own, but God told them that he wanted them to do this. 700,000 opportunities, 700,000 potential babies right there waiting, waiting to be adopted. There are so many opportunities that we have as Christians. There are so many things that we're faced with, so many difficult decisions that we're faced with, so many emotions that play into this thing that make these decisions even more difficult, so many unintended consequences that we cannot see. But the amazing thing that we can see is the cross right in front of us. We can follow the cross and make the right decisions every time if we keep our eye on the kingdom perspective. And if you, if you don't have that in your life and you've been struggling through your life making one bad decision after another, maybe it's time to lay it down at the foot of the cross and tap into this immutable morality, this morality that doesn't change, this compass that always points true. That's Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, if that's you at home watching, stop. Stop wandering around in the desert. You can feel it. You feel God calling. You felt it your entire life. It's that voice inside of you we call the conscience. That's God. He put it inside of us. He's trying to direct us to make the right decisions. But we keep trying to wrestle back control all the time. We do that. That's who we are as human beings. We're fallen. I'm going to invite the prayer people to come down and pray for people. Anybody who is out there today who needs to make that decision for Christ today, do it. Stop. Stop being lost. If you don't want to come down and pray, it's too embarrassing for you, in your seat, that's fine. Say, God, I accept you. I want you to chart my course because I'm making a mess of it. I have no idea which way is up anymore. If you're at home, get on your knees. You can do it there. If, some, if it continues to build on you and eat at you all week, call the office. Call a friend who's a Christian. Say, I'm ready to do this now. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, you have a perfect plan for us. You know how it's all supposed to work out. You know how we're supposed to work, where we're supposed to get married, if we're supposed to get married, if we're supposed to have kids, if we're not have kids, grandkids, adopt kids, whatever. You have a perfect plan for our lives. You've set the cross in front of us. You've given us this internal compass. You ask us to use it. You ask us to lean on you for and not our own understanding, Lord. There's hope. And Lord, I'd just like you to come in and fill this atmosphere with your Holy Spirit and just seep into the pores of the people who need you the most right now. And those are the people who haven't yet given their lives to you. The people who, who, who lack a kingdom perspective, who lack a kingdom to be a part of because they haven't given their life to you yet. Lord, we ask you to move in them now and move in them in the days to come so that one day they can know you and they can know a true north. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart.